0: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Knight. We start yet another week here on our show. And um, today we're going to take a break from talking about uh, election politics, uh, talking as we did a lot last week uh, with local experts about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, by the way, I should point out that uh, our shows with both uh, former U.S. Senator Sam Nunn, one of the uh, outstanding experts on uh, on armed forces in Europe, and also uh, a, a man who has devoted much of his post-Senate career to uh, uh, de-escalating uh, nuclear stockpiles, to, to uh, 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 removing as many weapons as possible and and modernizing those stockpiles. Um, he was on the show last Monday, uh, former uh, U.S. Supreme Commander of NATO, General Philip Breedlove, was on the show uh, later in the week. Both of those shows are available both on our website at gpb.org slash PR or as podcasts, and they are still relevant even as we move fully into the second week of the Russian invasion uh, into Ukraine. So I would, you know, really recommend you might want to listen to them if you missed them, but... Today, we're going to turn to a story that unfolded in the late 1940s in Georgia and yet resonates even today. And we'll be talking with Chris Joyner, AJC investigative reporter, whose book is The Three Death Sentences of Clarence Henderson. And while Chris's title tells you what the basics of the book are all about, the story of a black sharecropper in Carrollton, who in fact was convicted and sentenced to death three different times for a murder uh, that he was convicted of on very specious evidence. And yet in telling this story, Chris goes into a much broader uh, look at Georgia starting in the late 40s. He tells us about the emergence of the Communist Party, about the Klan's influence about democratic gubernatorial politics, the segregation politics of the Talmadge family. He talks to us about the aspirations in post-war America of communities like Carrollton. He talks to us about uh, how newspapers report uh, the news, the modernization of the state crime lab, and I could go on and on with uh, the ways in which Chris Joyner gives us this complete picture of life uh, that surrounded this infamous murder trial. Um, so we're going to introduce Chris in a minute, but before I do that, let me say hello to Jim Galloway, my partner on the Monday shows. Of course, Jim is the former political columnist from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, and a longtime colleague of Chris Joyner. Hi, Jim. Good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to start. This is going to be a good hour. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Jim. Then we'll move forward. Chris Joyner, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, being with us today. How you doing, Chris? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Well, okay. So let me start by with this. Um, this story was, you have said, was one that you knew about for many, many years and, and it was your dad who really suggested you dig into it and find out what exactly happened that led to three trials of Clarence Henderson. Um, and so you began researching it. And as, as we begin the conversation, let me just read something you write in the book. Uh, you did a lot of the research in uh, newspaper archives from West Georgia, the Georgian and the Times Free Press. And you, you wrote this. The more I dug into back issues of the Georgian and the Times Free Press, the more I became convinced the story of Buddy Stevens, who was the murder victims, said something about post-World War II America. From race relations to fear of communism to the ambition and paranoia of the post-war generation, it all played out in miniature in Carrollton. And Carrollton's version of the fractured post-war American psyche was just as high stakes as anywhere else. Life and death in the case of Buddy and the man of ki- accused of killing him. And the deeper I got, the more I realized how th- strong the themes of the episode still echo in the news of the day. Um, so, Chris, w- let's start with the crime itself. Um, who was uh, Buddy Stevens and uh, the young woman who he was uh, uh, I guess, on a date with Nan Turner and what happened uh, to uh, Buddy Stevens in that uh, in in that Halloween evening in 1948.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, Buddy Stevens was a young man. He just turned uh, 22 at the time of his death, which was uh, Halloween uh, 1948 uh he was the son of a well-placed white family in Carrollton the only child uh his father was a city clerk and uh, his mother was um, important in the white social scene in Carrollton and buddy had uh done time uh, in uh, the in the army as a military police officer in the years immediately following uh world war 2 Uh, and was a student at Georgia Tech. In short, he was really sort of the best Carrollton could produce uh, from that community. You know, he was a star student and a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout, uh, and uh, he had come home for the weekend uh, to uh, go out on a date with his girlfriend, uh, Nan Turner, who was a beauty queen and uh, was well-known in town as well. Uh, and they had driven out to what was going to be the Sunset Hills Country Club, a new country club in uh, in the city, and they were parking in Buddy's new car when they were abducted by a masked man uh, with a flashlight and a, and a pistol uh, and marched uh, across fields. Uh, unbeknownst to Buddy and Nan, there had been a series of rapes, uh, abductions and rapes in Carrollton over the course of several months, and they were the latest victims. In all those other cases, the masked man had scared off the boy and attacked his date. In this case, Buddy refused to be driven off, and uh, instead he engaged the uh, man, and tried to save his girlfriend, which he managed to do, but lost his
0: own life in the process. And Jim, as you know, uh, in reading the book, uh, this uh, caused a, a, a great deal of fear, and uh uh, was a sensational crime in largely white Carrollton.
2: uh yeah and it it's it's you know uh, if if i i I can go back to to that passage that you read bill i mean this is uh, it's it's amazing how much happened in georgia between the years 1945 and say 1952 uh, I mean, uh, this 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 shooting occurred October thirty first, nineteen forty eight. Uh, the Moore's Ford lynching of of four African Americans oh. happened just two, two years ago, and it, which they, which also involved uh, 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 World War Two vets or World War Two era vets. Uh, that occurred in in forty six. Uh, so you had you had all this. I, I think I think Chris is is dead on when he says this. You had this all this social bubbling happening uh, prior to kind of the 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 overt discussion of of civil rights in the United States. Uh, one thing, uh, Chris, if you could just another another overview is is that basically you had three death penalty trials occur in a span of. What three years, really? I mean, if you compress it, three years, which is, I mean, in 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 modern parlance, that that, that would be absolutely impossible. Uh, if if you could just give give us an over overview of. Of of just kind of I, I don't want you to give away any any, any of your your, your terrific <laughs> plot points, but, but just kind of tell us a little bit of of how that happened because I just find I just find the, the the ability to cram three of those trials into into that short space of time fascinating.
0: Well, well Chris, and it we really Could we could we could we let's start that, just that by pointing out the first trial and how it and, and the amount of time it took to convict Clarence Henderson, who was not, by the way, the first uh, suspect in this case. Uh, You write about that uh, extensively in the book. But when he is finally brought to trial, tell us about that first trial and then certainly move forward with what Jim was asking.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, And I I point out that um, Nan Turner, the girl who escaped the attacker, uh, did not see who the man was it was a dark night he was masked they were shining he was shining a flashlight at them the whole time uh and the only thing she was able to tell the police is that he sounded like a negro in her words uh and so then it became a, a case of really just a dragnet over the whole black community and an attempt to find someone and clarence henderson was the person they would eventually almost a year and a half later a, uh, arrest Uh, in in connection with the crime, and bring him to trial in um, a little more than a month uh, from arrest to trial. And that first trial, uh, from opening statements to verdict, took place in one day uh, over the course of about uh, 12 hours. And uh, that was not, I found, not unusual. I mean, the, the Jim Crow courts of uh, Of Georgia and across the South, very efficient in dispensing that kind of justice. Uh, and uh, Sam Boykin, who was the judge for the circuit uh, during that time, uh, it was not white or black, not unusual to dispense with a murder trial in one day. Uh, and then, of course, after that, you know it they went into uh, an appellate phase, which also happened very quickly uh, and went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, not once, not twice, but three times, uh, and uh, in the, it kept getting remanded back for retrials. Uh, the uh, second trial uh, went uh, in testimony two days, uh, and uh, then the third trial went uh, quite, a bit, quite a bit longer. I mean, it went about four days. But uh, even so, a, a trial that was that complex in its evidence to be done with in one day or two days you wouldn 't see that today, obviously, and you wouldn 't see it remanded back and retried in such a you know brisk fashion
0: um, let 's talk about the uh, one of the most fascinating aspects of the trial, i think at least uh, chris and you 'll tell me if you if you agree was the Evidence. Uh, without going into the history of the way in which they discovered the gun that uh, that the prosecution claimed was the gun that killed Nan Turner, um, it was a a nine millimeter pistol, or was it the other way around? A nine millimeter pistol. The other pistol, way around. But the, it was a uh, okay. It was, was a, a thirty-eight. 38. Small... Explain this. A... Sure.
1: It was a 38 revolver, but the round that was taken uh, from Buddy uh, by the uh, doctors that examined him after the after his murder was a nine millimeter round, uh, and that presented the initially because they they took the nine millimeter uh, round from from Buddy's body, they thought they were of course looking for a nine millimeter, but they became convinced uh, through ballistics examination that they were in fact looking for a 38 revolver that uh, where the nine millimeter round had somehow been made to fit right, a nine millimeter round
0: uh, We're losing uh, Sam Burmas Dawes we just lost uh, uh, Audio from uh, Chris um, if we can get it back Jim while we get Chris back let, Let's explain what what Chris was telling us here um, The the evidence the trail that led to Clarence Henderson was that he had at some point been in possession of this uh uh, revolver this 38 millimeter uh gun and uh and and so in an effort to pin the crime on him they they claimed that he had been able to file a nine millimeter uh bullet to fit the 38 and the evidence they came across was a file that had somewhere at henderson's possession and it was on that basis, really. That was the only forensic evidence they had of the entire thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, and actually, that's kind of where I was exactly headed. A 9mm slug, a 9mm gun in 1948 was fairly rare. Uh, I mean it, uh, it, and 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 Chris, when once we get him back, Chris can
0: uh, we've uh, got him. Can tell we've got. Okay, him.
2: great. Uh, Chris, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I mean, nine millimeter, uh, nine millimeter slug. You know that that was the 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 German Luger was was nine nine millimeter yeah Uh, which is why they they initially thought that they were looking for a foreign make pistol um right and and, but but go but go through go through what bill was talking about you have this fascinating passage in the book where you where you you have somebody i guess it's a the gbi investigator saying what hoops he had to go through to fire a a gun a a nine millimeter slug in a smith and wesson 38 pistol
1: Sure. Once they decided that the uh, 38 that they had recovered from a pawn shop was the murder weapon, they had to figure out how they would attach it to the the round that was taken from from Buddy Stevens' body. Uh, And what the forensic investigator at the crime lab did was uh, he decided that he would have to file down a bullet to make it fit, because it was a little too wide. The circumference was too too great. Uh, And... Uh, he wasn't even sure that it was going to work. He wasn't sure that it would that it would fire properly uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, and um, so he he examined the rounds that he had, uh, and uh, and filed down the brass jacket around the uh, the the nine millim- test nine millimeter rounds, and jam- sort of jammed them into the revolver to make them work. Uh, I mean. It's, it's a remarkable sort of like scientific laboratory experiment. Um, to then say, then also, that's the way that it would happen in the real world is another leap entirely. Um, that, the, that the supposed killer would have done the same thing. Um, you know, it, it takes, uh, it takes a, a little bit of imagination to figure that out.
0: Yeah, uh, Chris, they had to essentially, once they decided Clarence Henderson was uh, the, their their uh, suspect in the case, uh, they had to somehow come up with a story that would match the thirty-eight weapon that at one point had been in his possession to the 9mm uh, slug that they recovered uh, from Buddy Stevens. And, but let's make a larger point about this, Chris. It all goes to the fact that it, it, in those days in Georgia, Jim, the Jim Crow South, uh, efforts— to uh, convict a black defendant uh, w- would go to elaborate lengths, and all of that I think an important part of your story, um, aided by the reporting in the Georgian, the n- local newspaper in Carrollton at the time, which uh, which day after day uh, drummed into people's heads the black threat, and in this case, Clarence Henderson. Yes.
1: Yes, indeed. And yeah, I mean, they they worked from a prospect of guilt first and, and then sort of retrofitted the evidence as best they could to make Clarence Henderson the, the guilty party because it was extremely important for this community to have resolution of this crime. Um, I think that in, in so many ways, Carrollton is like a lot of communities after World War II. There was a lot of pent-up uh, desire uh, from the Depression and the war uh, to, you know, build their communities, provide, uh, you know, a, a, a safe and modern community for their children. And uh, there was also a tremendous amount of paranoia that, uh, you know, we look back at the that period uh, knowing how it all turned out, uh, that this was going to be a tremendous period of growth and stability for the United States. But at the time, they didn't know that and anything could have happened. Um, every, all their hopes were sort of risked uh, on um, something, you know, like, a, uh, you know, racial unrest, random crime, um, a lot of things that they feared might come along with progress. Um, and so uh, I think that that their desire to find a culprit was sort of overwhelming.
2: Chris, if you could talk a little bit about uh, about um, Henderson's uh, defense uh, attorneys and 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 how his defense morphed over those three t- trials, because I, I just find that, that just absolutely fascinating. I mean, uh, it, it became a, a cause celebre in uh, with the, with the NAACP. You had this wonderful figure and i hope you'll elaborate on on him uh, Dan du. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and the 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 guy who's a, just the object of a very very famous uh uh photo in in Georgia political history but just and 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 of course and then then there's the communist party. Uh that 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 kind of surprised me.
1: Yeah, it was a surprise to me when i was doing the research as well. I mean i i uh you know, uh, when I started doing my initial research, I was on staff at uh, Times-Georgian, which is the daily newspaper in Carrollton. And I would I'd find things in the stacks, and I'd come running back into the newsroom like it was breaking news, something that had happened 55 <laughs> years earlier. You won't believe it. There were communists in, in Carrollton in the, in the late 1940s. Uh, so initially, when Clarence Henderson went for his first trial, this one-day trial, he had uh, court-appointed attorneys, two white local attorneys. Um, and they provided virtually no defense for him. Uh, they called no witnesses, made very few objections. The uh, cross-examinations were, you know, pretty routine. It was—I um, don't think—I don't think there was ill will on the part of his defense attorneys, but there was just not um, uh, a tradition of robust defense of, you know, black suspects against, you know, uh, who have been accused of crimes of violence against
2: uh, white people. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, the, the on the the prosecution team included the judge's sister, older sister, uh, brother, Bro- brother, brother, yeah, that's brother. The, brother. That's,
1: yeah. There was uh, uh, another thing that's almost un- unreal today is that the judge's older brother, who was also a lawyer, was a special prosecutor in the case, and that uh, you know in that trial uh, there were there was like two dozen armed. Uh, state patrol officers ringing the, in the courtroom. I mean, it, it had a very different sort of feel than you would expect today. Um, but following his first trial, which, you know, the arrest to trial happened very quickly and sort of out of the public eye, uh, it became uh, his conviction and his initial uh, uh, defense for his appeal became a cause for the Communist Party of the United States. Ah, uh, the communists during that time were very interested in these kind of trials because they saw them as an example of how the system uh, mm-hmm. did not work correctly and subverted a class of people in uh, the United States that they thought would make really good recruits for their cause as socialist revolution in the United States. They thought really many people in the Communist Party thought socialist revolution in the United States was going to happen through the south in the in the black community. Uh, and obviously that was a that was a misread on their part, but that got them very interested in cases like Clarence Henderson's. Um, eventually, the NAACP, which saw itself very much in competition with the Communist Party during this period, would take over uh, the uh, the defense committee for Clarence Henderson and hire, who Jim was referring to, Dan Duke, uh, who had been a state prosecutor and really a forgotten figure, unfortunately, for many people in Georgia history. I mean, I think there's a version of events in Georgia where Dan Duke becomes a congressman or governor. You know, if things had broken differently in the South, he was that kind of consequential figure. He, um, But he was a, you know, a, a, a crusading white attorney uh, who would take on these kind of cases, uh, and he would become – you know a real champion of uh, clarence henderson's innocence um and you know to his own you know peril and was if you you represented somebody like this in this kind of crime you were put yourself at risk
0: um, I want to talk a little more about Dan Duke as the trial moves forward, but but Chris, I I think it's worth a, a mention or two. I, I, again, I think newspapers play it partly because you yourself have had a career in newspapering, uh, play an important role in your story. And one of the people who is a uh, mentioned w- with some regularity is uh, Ralph McGill, who today is, is kind of a legendary newspaper man and and maybe lionized more than is really, if you were to look at the body of his work, maybe we overlook some of the issues with Ralph McGill. So, for example, you write about McGill being a really crusading anti-communist uh, uh, writer. He, he wrote, in, you, you quote him from a, an April 1947 column, <clears throat> which is a headline, The Commies Have Come to Town. This is, of course, before the murder but nevertheless, it tells us his frame of mind. What we need to do with the communists is keep the spotlight on him, he says. We have plenty on the newest comrade. Um, I assume he's talking about Homer Chase there, all of which will be presented later on. And then he goes on and he gives uh, Homer Chase's home address uh, so that and his telephone number so that people uh, can target him. I mean, it, it, that's a fairly outrageous thing for a newspaper uh, columnist to do, uh, it seems to me, Chris. Right. And and Homer Chase was the communist organizer for the state of Georgia. He
1: represented the Communist Party and he was in Atlanta. And yeah, he he became a punching bag for Ralph McGill, who used um, a really, really fierce anti-communist stand as a way to sort of uh, give himself cover for his moderate views on race. Uh, He, he, he really was an opponent of segregation. Uh, he was sort of a gradualist. He thought that segregation needed to sort of gradually recede and that uh, that uh, African-Americans uh, needed a greater share of, uh, of the pie and political equity in, uh, in Georgia. Uh, and uh, that was a risky position for the editor of the Daily Newspaper to take, uh, but his uh, you know, going after someone like Homer Chase in such a, you know, uh, an outlandish way, really, um, placing the guy in in danger, um, was, you know, a way to sort of like bulletproof themselves. Um,
2: yeah, yeah. There, there, there's, there's a, there's an old man in me, who wants to tell all these young whippersnappers: See, you did not invent doxing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> there, there, there was there was no detail that was that uh, that Ralph McGill thought you know didn't belong in the newspaper about Homer Chase. He was published a photo of his father of Homer Chase's father's gravestone uh, in New Hampshire.
0: Uh, I mean, I don't think you can get too much more personal than that. So um, we got to get to a break, uh, Chris. But before we do, I do think as long as we're talking about McGill, you quote him in another context in your book he did in fact come to clarence henderson's defense uh i think after the, w- one of the convictions i'm not quite sure which you'll tell us um and and said that he believes that henderson deserved a better defense that he got that he was a family man uh that there was scant evidence uh to find him guilty so uh, that was the crusading uh, uh integrationist side i think of ralph mcgill you tell us both sides of him in the book yeah, and, and, and McGill's
1: a real person and a complex figure uh, uh, like, like anything else. You're right. We, maybe we, we lionize him too much because we don't give him credit for being a real person. He was walking a pretty fine line during that period.
0: I love that. I think that's right. He was a real person. All right, we've got to get to our first break of the show. Back with Jim Galloway and Chris Joyner in just a moment. <laughs> Back with Jim Galloway and AJC investigative reporter Chris Joyner, author of The Three Death Sentences of Clarence Henderson. And the subtitle, I think, is worth mentioning, A Battle for Racial Justice at the Dawn of the Civil Rights Era. And I know, Galloway, you and I are going lots of different directions with the book because it's so rich. There's so much here. Um, So let's continue doing that, Chris. Um, i'm fascinated first of all you tell me something that really i had no uh, n- had never known about before there was an actual gold ro- gold rush in carroll county georgia in villa rickle rica i where tell us about that <laughs> <laughs> well I, you know uh, i i felt like it was important to go
1: into the the history of carroll county because so much of the action happens there and it's it's if i'd written this uh, a story that happened in San Francisco or some place like that where readers already had an idea about it then uh it probably wouldn't be necessary but Carroll County its history may not be really known to to many people uh it was a it was a frontier town uh in the early 19th century it uh, had been uh for you know centuries uh, in eons uh, millennia or whatever it had been um Inhabited by uh, native inhabitants, uh, but uh, the Indian Removal Act uh, removed the Cherokee and Creek nations from from that area, and then it was settled by you know white settlers. Um, not it was not a particularly um, great area for. Uh, for settlement as, as as white people thought about it, because it was kind of rugged terrain, and so you couldn't really farm it in, in, a, in a in a big way. But, yeah, uh, gold was discovered in uh, Villarica in um, uh, the 1830s and uh, became a sort of boomtown, uh, much like Dahlonega did around the same time. There's a little, I think, a rivalry between Villarica and Dahlonega as to where the first... Uh, gold rush was but uh, it became a you know a uh, a town where you know they they were prospecting gold in in the daytime and and brawling in the streets at night and uh uh it was you now it's a it's a fascinating area i think
2: yeah it was well, kind and, of it was, and, you and, you 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 describe it as kind of the wild west of georgia it really uh, was
0: uh, um it, it, but and, then what happened I'm sorry, Chris, go ahead.
1: No, no, I, uh, uh, Jim's right. It was it was a really, it was a rough area. Um, it was cut off from a lot of uh, the rest of the state. And, uh, you know, it had sort of reputation for lawlessness.
0: But I think what, what we need to do to bring your, your story into the 20th century is point out that from those rough beginnings, that Wild West uh, atmosphere of Carrollton in the 19th century, uh, as, as, as World War II came to an end, the people of Carrollton, you write, had higher aspirations for what they wanted their city to become. And, and that's one of the reasons that the murder of Nan Turner uh, was so shocking to uh, the community, especially the fact that it was believed it was a, a black uh, man who committed the crime. Yes? Yes, uh, the, yes indeed. It was that murder uh, of Buddy Stevens. Uh, but I'm sorry, uh, buddy Stevens. Yeah. That's
1: all right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're absolutely correct. I mean, coming out of World War II, Carrollton, much like a lot of other places, uh, really saw this, saw their opportunity ahead of them and Car- and Carrollton had West Georgia college, which was growing tremendously as a result of the GI bill, uh, Southwire, which is a, still a major employer and Carrollton had, had just started. They had taken up uh, donations from the community to build a modern hospital uh, there were a lot of things happening uh, at, and they were building a country club they had created an artificial lake that a residential development was going around there um, it was an amazingly cooperative boosterish sort of community uh, particularly among the, the white residents uh, you know for the black residents it's a different story but for the for the for the white residents they really saw this sort of progressive, community that was going to develop and in fact would develop uh in the years uh, and decades following world war ii you throw something like a murder that combines you know uh race and sexual assault and uh the specter of anonymous street crime uh into the mix and it begins to make people wonder if this is ever going to happen for them so that's yeah it's it's a, it's a very traumatic act.
2: Jim. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, uh, boosterism has a, as a, a as a very strong history in the South. And, 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 and to that point, Chris, I, I'm just wondering what, what has been the local reaction to this book? Because that's, I mean, it's, this is, it's, 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 uh, it's, 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 you're, you're pulling back the covers on a lot of stuff people don't know.
1: Sure.
2: I mean, uh, you know, and,
1: and I've, research this in a way I would never recommend anyone write a book this way. Um, but I I started doing my research and spent several years, weekends and nights, uh, going through microfilm and old newspapers in the late 1990s. And then I got another job in another newspaper and left Carrollton. And I put all that information in a box and put it in a closet. And as I went from newspaper to newspaper, I didn't really touch it for more than 20 years. Um, when I first started looking into it, there were plenty of people alive who were young adults at the time of the event. And I had people who did not want to talk about it. Um, I had people who recommended that I not look too deeply into it. It was, it was still considered to be a traumatic, embarrassing, scandalous sort of event. Um, where many people felt robbed of justice, uh, at the end of it. Um, I would say today there's less of that. Um, it's passed to a greater degree out of living memory. Uh, it's maybe become a story that people have passed down. Uh, some people I've talked to, you know, they knew their, you know, their parent or grandparent had served on a grand jury or a jury during that period. And they, you know, so they have that connection, but it's not, it's not as visceral now. Now there's, I think, a little more interest in, you know, reclaiming this part of their history as to, you know, where they came from.
0: Uh, what's interesting about that, Chris, is uh, it's, it's distant memory today, perhaps, for many. But you point out uh, that even as the three trials are unfolding, by the third trial, uh, the newspapers have really shoved it to the back of the first section perhaps uh, you know cut it down to like six six graphs or something as opposed to the front page uh, treatment it got uh, at the very beginning yeah I think that you know, that shows how much a community
1: can change in just five years or so uh, particularly during this period it's why I think this period is so interesting and why I also think it's a lot like the period we're living through right now um, events overtake them, you know, uh, the Clarence Henderson trials, uh, you know, it becomes much more about what's the next thing for this community and how are they going to absorb that? Uh, and by the third trial, yes, it's, it's not, it, it might make front page, uh, but it's not, uh, it's not, you know, blasted across the top of the front page the way the first trial was. Um, and, um, like I say, I think, I think in, in this way, uh, it is a lot like today. You know, we're living through a period of rapid social change, and there's a lot of reaction to that change. Uh, you know, our our progressive and our reactive politics are very much at war with uh, with each other in um, the same way they were during this period in the late 40s and early 50s when you had, you know, the push of the civil rights movement and uh, the reactive uh, red scare that comes from uh, you know sort of that same place the 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 digging in of segregationists during that period uh, a lot of that has I think echoes today. Uh, Jim,
2: yeah, uh, G- Chris. I mean, uh, we we've just uh, gotten through the the Ahmad Arbery uh, case, uh, and and one of the more astounding things that that came out after the, after the video of that lynching. Uh, was was released? Was you had you had a raft of of Republicans, including Governor Brian Kemp, uh, denounce it. If if you could just kind of explain to listeners how how the the, the Clarence Henderson trials fit into the body politics of 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 nineteen nineteen fifties nineteen fifty two Georgia.
1: Sure, I mean, and I think one thing, one way to think about it is uh, Clarence Henderson was charged in. Um, late nineteen forty nine uh, with that uh, not, with that uh, forty eight killing if it had happened in nineteen forty one Clarence Henderson might not have ever seen the inside of a courtroom he might have been lynched on you know speculation at that time um, I think when he is arrested uh You know, he didn't get he didn't get a fair treatment, obviously. Um, If if you read the book and you look at the evidence against him, specious is as nice as you could say the evidence is. Um, But it is happening at a time when America is wrestling anew with the idea of race and civil rights. Uh, It's sort of at that hinge. Uh, When that case goes to appeal, it goes to the Georgia Supreme Court, which is an all white All male bench of jurists, and they turn it back, basically on lack of evidence. They look at the evidence and they say, "Well, you have not convinced us that this guy's guilty." Um, Again, if that had happened a decade earlier, I don't know that you would have gotten that from that, you know, from the state supreme court of Georgia. But the but the courts were being forced to look at the issue of race and justice in a new light after World War II. And and that would then become the uh, you know the platform for the NAACP. They would be pushing those courts to really seriously look at the idea of justice. And you know, and now we're again, you know, not to not to drive the point home too much, but we're we're seeing that again in the courts.
2: But 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 was was the was the Henderson case too small to 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 kind of enter the the lexicon of political campaigns? I mean, you you I mean. Uh, uh Eugene Talmadge had just died of, of course, but you had the son with with great ambitions. you had Marvin Griffin out there. Uh, you had all the characters who were going to play such a big role in the nineteen fifties uh did did it did it enter into the language
1: in only in, i think in a subtextual way uh, I don't think that there were um on the on the state um, on the state politics scene people who were uh banging the drum to Convict or free Clarence Henderson specifically, but the but the issue of, um, you know the the threat that civil rights uh, would present to the white political order, you know that that was happening obviously. Um, you know you would you would hear it from Gene uh, Talmage and Herman and and you know the, the their the people that would follow them um, would be. Would be saying Henderson's name without saying it. Now, on the more progressive side, um, Henderson's name would appear. I mean, his name would appear in you know uh, brochures at cocktail parties in New York uh, alongside other uh, you know blacks in the South who were being uh, uh, accused of crimes that they didn't commit, uh, and it would be a way to raise money for progressive issues, including the Communist Party. Um, so in that sense, Clarence Henderson did bring out
0: more in, you know, Manhattan than it did in Atlanta. Um, we've got to get to our final break of the show, but before we do, I do think it's uh, uh, picking up on what Jim just said, Chris. Uh, you do bring us into the political. Uh, scene at the time. Uh, you talk to us about Ellis Arnold, about both of the Talmadges, about Marvin Griffin, and you actually weave into your story the great Three Governors episode, uh, which if people aren't familiar with, they can certainly read about it in your book, but it was a period of, it was a moment in Georgia history where three different people had laid claim to the governor's mansion, and you found a way to work that into the story. So, I I say all that to say that if we've jumped around a lot, it's because you give us such a rich look at so many facets of Georgia life, with the uh, centerpiece, of course, being this unjust trial of Clarence Henderson. Let's take our final break of the show and come back with a little more, including um, we're going to update our show today by uh, going into a little bit of what uh, Chris wrote about uh, the other day in the AJC, and that's right-wing extremists going to the battlegrounds of Ukraine to get training for their mission. We'll be right back. Chris Joyner's book is The Three Death Sentences of Clarence Henderson, and uh, it's available to you at independent bookstores. For instance, Chris Uh, uh, 7 o'clock, I think tomorrow night, you're going to be at um, Eagle Eye Books in Decatur. And then uh, next week, you're going to be at Steady Hand Beer Company in Northwest Midtown for a reading and a signing. So uh, people uh, certainly can go out and see you there. By the way, I think I assume all this is on, you must have an author website. What's the URL for that?
1: Uh, Actually, I'm uh, I'm mostly doing my promotion through social media. So I'm at joiner okay. on Twitter, and you can find me on Facebook as well.
0: Okay, and I think Sam Burmistaz has probably already pumped out your uh, Twitter handle. Um, Jim, I do think we should spend a couple minutes, because Chris uh, not only is an investigative reporter, but as you certainly know from your years at the AJC, uh, uh, covers extremism. Um, and, and so with that in mind, Chris, you wrote a fascinating story the other day in which you describe how Ukraine uh, is, is perhaps attracting right-wing ex- militant extremists who are looking for a place where they can go uh, to, be, to gain more expertise in uh, fighting, um, in this case, I assume, against the, the Russians for the most part, yes, but to bring it all home. Yeah, uh, when and I wanted to write that story
1: because, as many people know, um, Vladimir Putin has claimed that you know Ukraine is a fascist state and that he's performing some sort of denazification of Ukraine, and that's you know there's a clear propaganda uh, effort there. Uh, but like any good propaganda, it's seized upon a small kernel of truth and sort of blown it out. And one of those is is that. Uh, when uh, Russia annexed the Crimea in 2014 the Ukrainian military was not didn't have the capacity to respond in the way that it does today and instead uh, relied on paramilitary organizations to sort of fill the gap some of those paramilitary organizations in Ukraine were from the far right and they attracted uh, foreign fighters including foreign fighters from the United States uh, sort of adventurous, Uh, people who would go over there and uh, fight uh, on on behalf of of, uh, Ukraine. And one of the reasons why they would do that is because they saw sort of common cause with these extreme-right paramilitaries. So some of our uh, uh, extremists, uh, usually these are people you would refer to as neo-Nazis or accelerationists, people who were interested in seeing the downfall of the American system. We're going over there because it was their opportunity for battlefield experience, which is highly prized in extremist communities. And they would the idea being they would go over there, get trained up, and they would come back and fight a civil war in the United States at a, at a later date. And uh, that's been a problem Ukraine has dealt with over several years is sort of pushing those foreign fighters out.
2: And now, now, Chris, a part of I mean, in 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 months and years past, you've written a, a good deal about uh, this operation called the base outside of I mm-hmm. think outside of Rome, where you had That's some right. very very specific characters uh, uh, doing this kind of training. Is there any sense that 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 those very people or people like them in the U.S. are are are, are headed over to the U- to, to Ukraine?
1: In the past, that was certainly the case over the past. Six seven years, um, uh, the base was is is transnational to begin with. I mean, the the, um, the founder of the base lives in Saint Petersburg, um, and uh, they're sort of stateless in that sense. Uh, but yeah, they they had a cell that was operating in, outside of Rome, Georgia, where they were plotting various terroristic acts. They were plotting. Fascinations, And one of the things that they would do is they would sit around and they would say, you know, I want to go to Ukraine. I want to hook up with this far right milita- paramilitary. And one of them was actually passing through at the time and told his plan to an undercover FBI agent that was there.
0: Um, so, Chris, do we have any evidence that that currently there are neo there are these extremist neo Nazis Americans who at this time have gone to Ukraine? Are you looking at this primarily through the lens of people like the base here in Georgia who've been there in the past?
1: Uh, well, you know, they had been there in the past, and and there was certainly the interest that they you know it was an opportunity. Uh, that was sort of unlike others, you know, they could go to a European, largely white community that shared, you know, some of their beliefs, some of these paramilitaries shared their beliefs, uh, and they would have an opportunity to get that battlefield experience. Um, the um, Ukrainian government had tried to purge those paramilitaries of, of these foreign elements by absorbing them into the National Guard and sort of formalizing that relationship. Um and so there had been less draw in recent years, but the Russian invasion has sort of reignited the desire in the American far right to go over and fight. Uh, and sometimes on either side, you know, this is, there's not as they're not very ideologically strict in that way. They're looking at this as a career opportunity to go get their, you know, their military bona fides. Um, I've heard, I've heard uh, experts, they describe it as sort of like, uh, radical Islamic extremists in the United States going and fighting for ISIS, and then bringing that uh, that that experience back home to our homeland. Yeah, Chris,
2: um, if, if if just I'm, I'm sorry, uh, it, Northwest Georgia has just has this reputation for producing and cultivating. Uh, the, these kinds of operations. Uh, what's, and, 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 and this, this in a way uh, relates to your book, I suppose. W- what is the draw? Well,
1: I mean, part of it is isolation from uh, urban centers, um, and it is, you know, racially much more homogenous uh, and uh, politically conservative, and all those things can sort of add up to pockets of radicalism. You wouldn't want to describe North Georgia as being politically radical but uh, you can uh, find and have long been able to find for instance remnants of the Ku Klux Klan uh, and uh, other other organizations like that that can exist in uh, sort of isolation up there and and that extends into you know uh, Northeast Alabama and Southeast Tennessee as well and uh, you, you find these sort of enclaves of radicalism up there. Uh, and part of that's just, you know, uh, where they are and who they are. You know, they're they're largely white. It's it's isolated from sort of urban areas. And there's a great distrust of urban areas uh, up there. Uh, and all that can can provide a hotbed for, you know, occasional uh, cells like this terrorist cell there.
0: Jim Galloway, Chris Joyner. Um, we're just about out of time uh, for today's show. Chris, your book is The Three Death Sentences of Clarence Henderson, A Battle for Racial Justice at the Dawn of the Civil Rights Era. Um, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, it's, a, it's a book just rich in history of Georgia in the middle of the 20th century and, and beyond. And uh, we, I think I highly recommend it. And Chris, it was your dad who set you off on this long trail of research that led to the book. And I suspect that must make you, it must make you feel great that you were finally able to do what he suggested a long time ago, you do, yes?
1: Yes. Uh, you know what he, he he knew a good story when he when he saw one. <laughs> all right,
0: Chris Joyner, Jim Galloway, thank you so much for a terrific conversation. We're out of time for today. We're back tomorrow. We got a lot of election politics uh, to talk about again uh, with our panel. So I hope you'll be back with us. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See you all tomorrow. Thanks, Chris and Jim. Bye bye.